So everything we just read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 50, are still springing out from what Jesus had done in verse 22 of the same chapter. If you go back to verse 22, you see that Jesus had just healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. So he drove the demon out of this man. He drove the demon away from this man. And it resulted in the return of the man's sight and the return of that man's speech. And this miracle, this sign, this wonder performed by the Lord Jesus Christ so astonished the crowds, they were stunned. They were utterly floored. That's what the word in, the, in verse 23 means when it says the people were amazed. It means they were absolutely floored by what they just witnessed. So much so that they began talking amongst themselves and asking this question, as you see in verse 23, can this be the son of David? And the Pharisees, the Pharisees being the religious leaders of the day, hoping to put an immediate stop to the crowds asking this question or pondering this question, suggested an alternative in hopes of souring the crowd towards Jesus. And in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 24, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so after the Pharisees had spread this most slanderous accusation, Jesus launched into a clear and direct rebuke of their hard-hearted, self-centered, rebellious attitudes. He reprimanded them for their refusal to use even the simplest level of common sense, saying, listen, Pharisees, if it is true that Beelzebul, the prince of demons, is empowering me to do ministry, to drive out other demons, then the kingdom of Satan is divided against itself, and a kingdom divided against itself does not stand. It cannot stand. It always falls. But as you can see, Pharisees, the kingdom of Satan is alive and well. It is oppressing people. It is possessing people, enslaving people, holding people captive to, the, to sin and death. And now Jesus, the Messiah, is here in the power of the Spirit. He has come to plunder the house of Satan and to set the captives free. And the Pharisees here, we, they knew that Jesus had been sent by God. Look at John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus says it. We know that you are sent from God because nobody could do the works that you, did unless, that you do unless you are come from, you've come from God. Jesus has already healed disease. He's healed sickness. He's even raised the dead. Unless he had been commissioned and empowered by God to do so, he never would have been able to perform such deeds. But these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were so blinded by their rage, so hardened in their self-love and in their pride, that they refused to acknowledge even the possibility before the crowds that this Jesus has come from God and is performing the works of God. Instead, they would rather betray their own God. They would rather deny their own God. This is the same God who delivered them out from slavery in Egypt, who cared for them the entire way. He brought them into the promised land. This is the God who cared for this, this people. But these Pharisees, much like the Gentiles we read of in Romans chapter 1, would rather suppress by their unrighteousness, they would rather suppress the knowledge of the truth. And so these Pharisees, in doing so, stood on very dangerous ground. And everyone 
who, like the Pharisees, rejects and rebels against the Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious offer of forgiveness and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in him, also stands on the same dangerous ground. But these Pharisees, they knew the Lord Jesus was working, or the Lord was working in and through Jesus. They knew that the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus, and yet they attributed the works of Jesus to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and what this served to do is reveal the state of their hearts. Their hearts were almost completely past the point of no return. And so Jesus warned them, saying in chapter 12, verse 31, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so Jesus called the Pharisees to either believe or not believe. Choose your side. You're either for God or you're not. You can't play this game of thinking his works are good and his person is bad. No, a tree, a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. You're either all in or you're all out. You're either with Christ and therefore with God himself or you're against him working against him, working against the kingdom of God, scattering where God would gather. See, this is true. Jesus makes this statement all the time. There are only two options here. The same is still true today. You're either in, all in with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in him, or you're all out. And in the words of Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in him, you are against him, scattering. And this severe rebuke that Jesus brings against the Pharisees culminates in his calling them, in verse 34, a brood of vipers. And in 1223, evil. Meaning their words, their teaching, their very hearts were filled with a potent venom that both poisons and kills all who ascribe to it. And the response of some of the scribes and Pharisees, now notice that in verse 38. It says some, right? Not all, some of the scribes and the Pharisees. As we know, Nicodemus was probably in that crowd and he knows that Jesus is a man who's come from God. But some of these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they say in verse 38, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In other words, the Pharisees, hearing Jesus' words, and noting his claim to be a good tree that produces good fruit, they come to him and they ask him for another sign. They ask him for another miracle to reveal to them his supernatural credentials, something that would attest to his words. But you need to realize that as you look at this, this is not an innocent ask. Remember, these men hated Jesus. Right? In verse 14 of chapter 12, it tells us they've already gone out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Destroy here means put him to death, kill him. And here they are now asking for another sign. It's their backhanded way of saying, Jesus, none of the works that you have done so far are good enough to convince us. They are not sufficient enough to prove anything to us. And so our assessment about the source and the power behind your ministry stands. So, come on, Jesus, show us a sign that'll amaze us. Jesus, impress us, Jesus. Impress us with this Spirit of God that is upon you. But the question that I would like to ask is, what kind of sign are they looking for? Like, really, what kind of sign are they looking for? What kind of sign could break through such hardened and rebellious hearts as these? Maybe seeing their names written in the clouds in the heavens? 
maybe if Jesus had said, look, these stones, I'm going to make them levitate right before your eyes. Maybe if Jesus called down fire from heaven, who knows? And this ask by the Pharisees here, it's quite informative for us, isn't it? Because I know in my time of ministry, there have been many who've said to me things like, you know, if I could just see some miraculous sign from the Lord, I would believe. But is that true? Is it really true? Because the Bible seems to indicate that it's not. Think about King Ahab and Queen Jezebel for a second. Imagine being in that scenario, right? The prophet Elijah sends word to King Ahab saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain for three years except by my word. Now, would it be enough of a sign for you for a prophet to come and declare a drought over the whole land and then that drought actually comes to pass? What about when the Lord sent Elijah back to King Ahab and said, we're going to end the famine now and you're going to see the rain? Would that be enough? Or what about the contest that that Elijah initiates between himself and the Lord against the prophets of the false god Baal in the nation of Israel? You remember that, that historical event, right? Two bulls are placed on two separate piles of wood. And the challenge is set down in 1 Kings 18. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And so the prophets of the non-existent Baal in 1 Kings 18, 26 called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice and no one answered. And then Elijah's turn came. And after drenching the altar he had built with water, with what little water was available, he called on the Lord to answer by fire, and this is what happens. This is what happened. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the woods and the, the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And the peoples who were watching this event, the peoples of Israel, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. But what do you think Jezebel did? After witnessing such an event, fire coming down from the heavens, would that be enough to convince you? Hard-hearted Jezebel responded the same way that the Pharisees who were standing in front of Jesus on this day responded. She committed herself to the destruction of the prophet Elijah. She mobilized her resources to kill him. You see, it doesn't matter really How many signs and wonders are multiplied before the eyes of the hard-hearted and rebellious? Because they'll never be enough. Think about the crowds watching Jesus on this day. They were amazed at everything Jesus had accomplished. They were amazed by his miracles. These same crowds would see Jesus raising the dead and healing the sick. They would eat the bread from the feeding of the 5,000. And yet, they would cry out at the instigation of the Pharisees, for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ when Pilate sought to set him free. And so Jesus understood this and so therefore refused to perform any more miracles on this occasion. He had provided enough to convince anyone who had eyes to see and ears to hear who he is. 
He'd given enough evidence to authenticate his identity, but again, it's never enough to convince the hard-hearted rebel. It's never enough to convince someone who is determined to resist the Lord. Only the renewing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit on the heart can overcome such obstinance. And if you think about it, why would Jesus perform another miracle? The miracle that he had just worked in front of them led them to accuse him of being in league with Satan. So why? Why bother with another one? They slandered him to the crowds based on the miracle that he'd just performed. So there are a number of reasons for Jesus to refuse their request, but Jesus gives us a specific answer as to why he refuses their request on this occasion in verse 39. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Meaning, only a generation that has forsaken the Lord seeks for signs. Only an evil, morally corrupt generation seeks for a sign. An adulterous generation. Now, that word is interesting, right? We know evil means morally bankrupt here, but this word adultery, this, this, this terminology of adultery is, is a graphic and it's a forceful and it's an audacious word that had been used to describe Israel throughout the Old Testament. To describe the relationship between the Lord and His people Israel. When they served idols, the Lord illustrates it through the prophets in terms of a marital relationship and terms things adultery. You see, Israel was pictured as betrothed to or married to the Lord in the Old Testament, and the Lord is pictured throughout the Old Testament as the rightful husband of Israel. And so therefore, the nation forsaking the Lord in favor of the gods of the surrounding nations, this idolatry was described as adultery, and, and in quite vivid terminology too. Through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord in graphic detail very graphic detail, told the story of Israel using the language of unfaithfulness. Here, as you listen, this is going to be a little bit of a longer, you can open the uh, Ezekiel 16 if you'd like. But here, the deep, the dramatic, the uninhibited and emotive language that the Lord speaks about the nation of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. He begins by illustrating his taking of Israel to himself as a bride, starting from the beginning in uh, verse 1. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any things, to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live! I said to you in your blood, live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. 
Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty." And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. See all the Lord had done for Israel. He took her, a nation that no one cared about, a nation in her infancy, a nation that had been, as Ezekiel said, cast out into the open field and left to die. But the Lord, in His great love, took her to himself. He made a covenant with her and entered into a matrimonial bond with her. And how did the Israelites of old repay the Lord for his kindness to them? Look at what he says in verse 16. You trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. And then flip down, look down to verse 25. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. And look at verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things. And verse 32. Adulterous wife. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Can you feel the emotive language in that prophetic word? This is Israel in the old times. And so Jesus now, looking at the Pharisees standing before him, calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And in essence, he is declaring them to be just as, if not more unfaithful and adulterous, than this generation to whom Ezekiel spoke. Only such a generation as they are, as was right there before Jesus would seek for a sign. Especially given all the signs that Jesus had already worked in their sight. The situation was reminiscent of all the mighty and the wonderful and the powerful works that the Lord had done to save Israel. When he brought them up out of Egypt with great signs and wonders and he parted the Red Sea for them and he, he fed them with manna from heaven and he gave them water from rocks. He had done all of these things. His works were multiplied before their very eyes and yet it was never enough to satisfy this people. It was never enough to bring them into full commitment to the Lord. 
And this interaction between Jesus, the King of Israel, and the people is playing out the exact same way as it always has. Miracles are wrought. And while some people see and believe, the majority of the generation refuses to believe and instead decides to turn to someone or something other than the Lord God. And so Jesus would not on this occasion, for this reason, perform any sign to these men. Jesus had performed miracles, and he, would, he had performed miracles of such quantity and quality that if their hearts were open to the truth in any way, shape, or form, they would have fallen on their knees in repentant faith, but they were blind, they were heart of heart, and they chose to reject him instead. You see, Jesus isn't some sort of circus monkey here. He's not someone who just does tricks at the behest of rebels and evil men. And given the slander of the Pharisees after all that they had seen, really, what possible sign could Jesus have done that they would have accepted? For us in our day who seek signs, we must be careful not to be like these Pharisees. We've been given the most outstanding and amazing signs all around us. The problem is not the signs that we've been given. The problem is that we start to see these signs as boring, humdrum, and normal. I mean, we've got creation itself, don't we? Ponder the works of the Lord in creation. There are a, they are enough to prove the existence of God, eternal in power and divine in nature. We've been given the scriptures. The scriptures are an absolute miracle for us. The revelation of the Lord, the revelation of who He is, of what He's like, of His dealings with humanity, of how we can be in a right relationship with Him by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That so many of us begin to see creation and scripture as anything less than miraculous and powerful signs that so many of us never take the time to consider creation, that never take the time to actually read the scriptures so, to under, so as to understand them, the fact that we would seek something else, something more, is awfully similar to the Pharisees standing before Jesus on this day. However, while no sign would be given in that moment to these Pharisees, Jesus does say that there is a sign for them. Two signs, actually. The first of them is the sign of Jonah. You see that in the next verse there. The sign of Jonah. As he said next, starting in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. So as you can see here, Jesus without question understands and refers to Jonah being swallowed up by this great sea monster or this great fish as a historical event. And just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, as recorded in Jonah 1 verse 17, there we read, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In like manner, Jesus will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. So what's happening here? This is the first clear reference to the death of Christ in Matthew's gospel up to this point. And it reveals to us, it revealed to them, albeit in an ambiguous manner, it pointed to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As Jonah, after three days and nights in the fish, now, and just as an aside, the term here for day and night is a, what we call a Semitic idiom. It's a figure of speech, right? It means any part of or portion of three calendar days, all right? That's how they would use it. So it doesn't have to be that Jonah and Jesus were in their respective places for three days, three literal days and three literal nights, but that they were in them in the span of three days, any part or portion of three separate days. And so, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then was spit out by that fish, as we read in Jonah 2, verse 10, says this, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. In like manner, Jesus will also emerge from the grave after three days. The resurrection is the great sign. And while there will be many who refuse to believe or be convinced, as Luke tells us, as Jesus tells us in Luke, be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead, the resurrection still is the great sign. The resurrection is the sign that overcame the belief, unbelief of so many. As you read through the book of Acts, listen to what the, the Peter preached to the people. He told them in Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And this Recognition of the resurrection of Jesus and a call to repentance cut the people to the heart so that 3,000 people turned to the Lord Jesus Christ that day. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the great sign that has overcome the unbelief of so many Jews in that day and has overcome the unbelief of so many in every generation since. That would be the great sign. But then Jesus refers to the men of Nineveh as well. See, while the great sign will be the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in reference to Jonah's situation, we are actually never told that Jonah went and relayed that information to the people of Nineveh. Nor are we told that anyone from Nineveh actually witnessed Jonah being put up, belched up onto the beach by this huge sea creature. What we are told is that Jonah traveled about a day's journey into the city and the Ninevites simply heard Jonah, the reluctant prophet, Quietly, or loudly, whichever, proclaim, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah 3, verse 2. And these words preached by Jonah brought full-scale repentance in Nineveh to such a degree that Jesus makes it clear that these men, these repentant people in Nineveh, they will rise up and stand up in the judgment on the Lord's side. They truly believed. They were truly saved. This idolatrous nation repented when they heard the preaching of Jonah. They heard the preaching of a man who didn't even want to be there preaching to them. And they repented. This prophet who hated Nineveh, this prophet who hoped that Nineveh would experience the judgment of God. However, when they heard the call of repentance, Nineveh, all the men of Nineveh, from the the highest to the lowest, repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now compare the men of Nineveh and their response to Jonah with the nation of Israel and its response to Jesus. Think about all the peculiar privileges that Israel had been given. And even more, consider the privilege that the generation that is standing right there in front of Jesus, hearing words from his mouth and seeing him actually perform miracles... Think about the privilege they had been given. They had heard the call to repent from the Messiah who had been prophesied to them in their own scriptures. And they rejected it. Contrast that the men of Nineveh 
with the Israelites in our text. Jonah begrudgingly went after trying to run away from the task to preach repentance to a people that he hated, while Jesus lovingly and compassionately brought the message of repentance to the nation he loves. Jonah just showed up out of nowhere and started preaching to a people who were not expecting him. And they all repented when they heard the message. Jesus, on the other hand, came to his own people after thousands of years of prophetic words and preparation. He came to a people that were waiting for the Messiah. They were expecting him. They knew he was coming and yet they refused him when he took on flesh and made his dwelling among them. Jonah simply preached the message of repentance while Christ preached the message and authenticated it with mighty and wonderful works. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jonah didn't want Nineveh to repent and he was angry with God when they did. Jesus gave up his life to save everyone who would believe in him. If the men of Nineveh repented upon hearing Jonah... How much more should the nation of Israel, when they hear and they see something greater than Jonah, that something greater than Jonah is here, meant that the nation of Israel was under a more urgent obligation to repent than Nineveh was. Because if they die in their unbelief, it will be worse for them than any Ninevite in history. It's the same principle that Jesus taught in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. For these Israelites who reject the clear light of the gospel from the lips of the Savior himself, he said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre, Sidon, and the land of Sodom than for you. Now listen to me here. It's the same is true for you and I. The same is true for us who on this side get to look back to the saving work of Jesus Christ who have it specifically written for us, recorded in Scripture, who have it preached to us every Sunday in pulpits all over the world, who have it spoken to us by Christian friends, who hear it on the radio, who hear it in the songs. To reject such clear calls to repent will lead to your eternal devastation along with the Pharisees of the generation recorded here in Scripture. In fact... The men of Nineveh who repented at the word of Jonah, Jesus said they will join together with the saved of all ages on the judgment day to condemn this, this generation of Pharisees. But it doesn't end there. They don't just rise up with this, this generation to condemn those Pharisees. They will rise up with all believers to judge all and condemn all who, rejects, who rejected Jesus throughout all of history. And the fact here that the Ninevites would judge Israelites, this was extremely insulting to the Pharisees standing here. Because they believed that by virtue of their being Jewish, they were part of the family of God. They would be the ones who would condemn others at the final judgment. But Jesus makes it clear there is only one way to escape condemnation. There's only one way to escape the judgment of God in the end. And that is by repenting from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Calling out to Jesus in trust. Believing that he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. These Israelites were guilty of the great sin of refusing to heed the command to repent by one greater, not just than Jonah, but greater than every single prophet who has ever lived or breathed combined. 
But it wasn't simply the sign of Jonah. He also says they were guilty of refusing to heed the wisdom of one greater than Solomon, as you read in the next, in the next verse, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see, Solomon was given the blessing of great wisdom, a wisdom of renown, a wisdom that brought royal dignitaries from all over the world to hear him. And one such instance is recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 10, that of the Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba. It's recorded, in, like I said, in 1 Kings 10. Now, scholars believe that the distance that she traveled was about 1,200 miles, or for us, the 1,900, roughly 1,900 kilometers. In our day, we could probably fly that in a couple of hours, right? It's no big deal. You hop on a plane, you fly out there, you're there. But that's not what it was like on this day. During the days of Solomon, a trip of 1,900 kilometers could take months. It was a real commitment to make such a trip or such a journey. And she took this trip, and 1 Kings 10.1 says that she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, and she came to test Solomon with hard questions. She told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and all of his works, she was amazed. Her mind was blown. And she cried out in 1 Kings 10, verses 8 and 9, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This queen, she will also rise up at the judgment to condemn the generation of Pharisees in this text. She will also rise up to reject the, or to condemn those who reject the wisdom of Christ. And while she traveled a long way to hear the wisdom of Solomon, standing right before the Pharisees on this day is not just a wise man, not even just a wise king. What you've got standing before you here is wisdom incarnate. She trekked across the world to listen to Solomon. And these Pharisees would not take a single step to listen to Jesus, even though he was right in front of them. The Queen of Sheba is surely instructive for all of us who have the Word of God within arm's reach every single day, every single minute of every day. Your house probably has at least three Bibles in it, right? You can, at any moment, download the Bible onto your phone. And who doesn't have a cell phone? Did I see another hand go up? All right, learn from these people. <laughs> but for the rest of you, you've got cell phones. The Bible can be on it. Do you desire to hear the wisdom of God with the same intensity that the Queen of Sheba did? 
You see her plying Solomon with questions, desperate to know more, desperate to hear more about the wonders of God. And then when she hears them, she cries out with joy as the wisdom of God is spoken to her. How desperate are you? How desirous are you to hear more about, to learn more of the wisdom of God? What lengths will you go to to know and to understand God's word? I hear some say, well, it's it's too hard for me to understand. How desperate are you to understand it? It's boring for me to read it. How desperate are you to know God's will? The Queen of Sheba is instructive for us. And the fact that the Israelites in this generation simply refused to repent and listen to the Son of God who was greater than Jonah and wiser than Solomon and was standing right in front of them speaks volumes to their, the state of their heart. And how did they get to this point? How did they get to this point of such hardness of heart? Well, Jesus explains with an illustration here in verses 43 and on about exactly the situation Israel underwent, the dangers of moral reform without spiritual renewal. The dangers of moral reform without spiritual renewal. Listen to verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And listen to this last line. This is key. So it will be with this evil generation. So this illustration that Jesus uses here is specifically referring to this evil generation. So let's go back a little bit and try to figure this out. Throughout Israel's history, in the promised land, she consistently and repeatedly and unashamedly and energetically worshipped the idols, worshipped the false gods of the nations around them. You get a good insight into it in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 15 to 20. There we read this. They, Israel despised his, the Lord's, statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and they worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. In sending the Jewish peoples into exile for her sins, the Lord chastised them for their wickedness and for their idolatry. And in his grace, after a season of exile... 
the Lord brought the people back into Jerusalem where she never succumbed to the same sort of idolatry again. You don't hear anymore of Israel making metal images of calves, making Asherahs and bowing down to them once they return into the land again. Israel, so to speak, worked to clean up her act. But as a nation, they never truly repented. They never truly turned to the Lord. Israel never truly sought internal renewal, a true heart religion. Instead, what they did is they created a religion of externals. And over time, they began to increasingly trust not the Lord and His grace and His mercy, but they came to trust in their own works and the system of externals that they had created. And here lies the danger of external and moral reform apart from true repentance and true salvation. Such a state one of mere religion without true conversion leads, as Jesus said, to a later condition that is far worse than the initial one. There's a cell phone. One demon becomes eight in the illustration. The Pharisees now, standing before Jesus, were actually far worse, in a far worse place than the idolaters before the exile. At least... When the idolatrous Israelites of old saw the works of God, as they had when Elijah um, contested with the prophets of Baal, they would cry out, The Lord, He is God! But these Pharisees here, seeing the works of God before their eyes, called those works satanic. Something absolutely unheard of in previous generations. See, Israel reformed from idolatry in the form of worshipping statues, to idolatry, to the idolatry of morality. And in their morality, they were now more wicked than the previous generations had been. Israel, indeed, fits the description that had been given by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.22. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You see, Israel had simply traded one form of idolatry for another. Idolatry to statues, to the idolatry of religious ceremony and moral rules and traditions as the way to righteousness before the Lord. And this means, according to Jesus, that their last state had become worse than the first. And again, this is another principle that is very instructive for us today, both culturally, nationally, and personally, or culturally, nationally, and personally. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you are an ambassador for Him in this world today, if you ever find yourself satisfied the, by the idea of living in an externally moral culture, more than one that is inwardly transformed by saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your priorities are way off. They are worldly. They are more like the, 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 those of the Pharisees than Christ. And you must repent of this most reprehensible and adulterous notion. Souls are damned by the push for the moral without true salvation. This kind of focus on moral reform without spiritual renewal makes a person self-righteous. It makes a person blind to their need. It makes a person blind to their own sin. Look at the Pharisees. They are content with the empty house 
believing that their sweeping and their ordering of the house is sufficient. But it's not. And it is the epitome of selfishness for a Christian to simply work for the change of society for their own benefit, given what Christ has said about the outcomes of such a labor. Without spiritual reform, everyone will be worse off in the long run. And this is important because we as Christians can often get caught up in sweeping the house and putting everything in order. Whether the house is our society, our culture, or ourselves, we can align ourselves with our favorite political figures, our favorite cultural icons, thinking of them as brave and heroic, even though they don't know Christ. And we do this in hope of seeing our nation conform to our ideas of social propriety and morality. But we must be careful because in the end, none of our labors will matter at all if our city is as moral as it can be, but souls are not saved. Without real salvation, without true relationship to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, without the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to sanctify us, to make us increasingly holy and increasingly Christ-like, the house remains empty. Sure, it might be swept up and put in order for a while in the short term, but eventually everything gets worse in the long term. Let me illustrate it. I would venture to say that many of us would love to have lived or love to live in a culture that is as moral, morally upright as Israel was in the days of Jesus, right? All of the issues that are confronting us today were non-existent for them. They weren't pressing in on them. And yet Jesus referred to this generation as a wicked and adulterous generation because they trusted in that external morality. They tr that self-trust hardened their hearts and damned their souls. Focusing primarily or aiming exclusively at the promotion of outward righteousness is one of the great, single greatest hindrances to the gospel. And how many believe that they are good with God because they are externally moral? Because they do nice things here and there. Because they give every so often at Christmas. They put a fiver in the Salvation Army pot as you leave Superstore. Or you treat people kindly. Those are all good things. But if you're trusting in those things, all that is is sweeping the house, putting things in order, and your state will be worse than the first if you trust in those things. How many believe they are good with God because they are externally immoral, but their hearts remain unconverted. It's a demonic illusion. The truth is, working for outer reformation without focusing on the renewal of the heart, without tirelessly preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is simply put, pharisaical. We must, above all things, proclaim salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We must proclaim that Jesus is the hope of the world and you can be saved if you believe in him. We must recognize that we need the Holy Spirit to live in us. We need Jesus to humble us. We need to repent of our sins and turn to him. May it never be that we contribute to the creation of Pharisees who can stand in the temple and say, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. 
I pray that in our work, our mission, that we would be those who create people who say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because as Pastor John MacArthur put it, morality apart from, living, from the living Christ can never be more than a sham. And the more that it is relied upon, the more dangerous it becomes. So let's just think about you as an individual this morning. If you think that you are right with God because you present yourself as an externally moral person and you trust in that morality, perhaps you've got your New Year's resolutions already written. Perhaps you're committing to turning over a new leaf in some area of your life without Christ, without belief in Christ, without repentance and faith. All of these things are merely sweeping the house and putting it in order. And your last state will be worse than the first what you truly require, what you need more than anything else is not an empty, clean house, but you need a new tenant to take up residence in your house. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to be that tenant. Then and only then will you be saved. Then and only then will you grow in Christ-likeness and holiness. But let's pull back again to the wider context. Jesus declared that this will be the case with the evil generation of the Israelites to whom he ministered because they, by refusing to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, left their national house empty. And so Jesus here is, in essence, returning back upon them the accusation of being in league with the demonic. Who really is in league with Satan? Me, whose house is filled with the Holy Spirit, or you, who's got eight demons now living in you. Your house is not occupied by the Lord. Your house is occupied by great quantities of evil. And while they thought of themselves as the household of God, as the family of the Lord, Jesus revealed that based on where they were at that moment, that was not the case. And he used this moment, this teaching moment for them to illustrate this when his own immediate family came to speak with him. Look at verse 46. Said while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, the Jews assumed that they were the family of God. They were the household of God. They assumed that the Gentiles were excluded from the family. But Jesus has already made it clear, right? The men of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn you. The queen of the south, she's going to rise up and condemn you. For Jesus, the believing spiritual family took priority over the unbelieving physical family. The believing family of Gentiles is prioritized here over unbelieving Israel. And this is yet the formation of another judgment of Christ upon the nation of Israel. He won't stop preaching repentance to them, but he is sure revealing some, some truths to them here. Jesus made it clear, whoever is not with him is against him. Whoever does not gather with him scatters. And Israel, this generation standing before him, is in the camp of scattering and against, while the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south are in the nation, or in the people, of the, that, people that are with him. It's instructive for us too, right? Because Jesus 
is our top priority. Your allegiance should first and foremost be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, when he says that who are my mother and my brother and my sisters, there is this elevation of the spiritual family. See, far too often we can get caught up in focusing exclusively on our physical families. Scripture commands us to do that. Scripture mandates that we take care of our families. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But Jesus here sets down for us something quite stunning that both your spiritual family and your physical family are of primary importance in your life. We exist together side by side. So, recognize that as important as your familial relationships are, they do not necessarily supersede or take priority over your spiritual family. They are together. We are called to love and to care for and to provide for our immediate families and our spiritual family. And Jesus makes this clear, right? He tells us as a spiritual family that we are to love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. That's a huge deal. And this is why division, quarreling, unforgiveness, and the like, when compared to the ideal, when compared to the word of Christ that we ought to love one another as Christ loved us, it's quite a scandal. We ought to see each other and be for one another a real family. A true family as connected to one another as we are to our own household. And when the world knows us more for our quarrels than our familial love, then something is wrong. But let's just pull back out or go back to the larger picture that Jesus is telling the Pharisees here. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's not the unbelieving Israelites who are of the household of God, but it is instead those who do the will of, her, of his Father in heaven who is of the household of God. And now that begs the question, what exactly is the will of God. Well, John 6, 29, Jesus sets it out for us. This is the work, or this is the will of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So would you, this morning, be like the unbelieving Pharisees and deny Jesus? Would you be like these Pharisees who know how to clean and sweep the inside of the cup, but, or the outside of the cup, but inwardly are full of wickedness? Would you be one who commits to a moral, external religion without any sort of true, inward, spiritual change? Would you be excluded from the family of Christ because you don't obey the will of the Father in heaven to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If that's you, my prayer for you is that you would hear the word of the Lord this morning and that you would do the exact opposite of the Pharisees. That you would do this morning the thing that the Pharisees just simply refuse to do and that you would repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation because if you do, you will be saved. Make your heart a real internal religion or make your faith in Christ real. And we sang that in closing at the beginning. You remember when we sang Holy Spirit. Listen to the words again. Holy Spirit, 
living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you. And Lord, for those of us who sometimes succumb to the temptation to focus on the externals rather than true, real heart change, I pray that you would um, bring us to, our, to repentance, that you would help us to focus on that which truly matters, that is the renewal of the heart, the new birth. And I pray that the response of the Pharisees to the Lord Jesus Christ in our text this morning would be instructive and informative to us. That we wouldn't see the miraculous works of the Lord Jesus Christ and rebel against them, but that we would hear his word and see who he is as revealed in scripture and that we would believe and by believing that we would be saved. Lord, let this be our reality and we pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.